Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with one We'll begin with one of the few people who have stood up to Vladimir Putin and are still alive and speak with Bill Browder, the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, who was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005 when he fell afoul of Putin. Since 2009, when his lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was murdered in prison after uncovering a $230 million fraud committed by Russian government officials, Bill has been leading a campaign to expose Russia's endemic corruption and human rights abuses. We will discuss his new book, Just Out, Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath, and how Trump wanted to hand Bill over to Putin to never be seen again, only to be stopped by a 98-0 to zero vote in the United States Senate, and why it has taken Western leaders so long to acknowledge that Putin is a thief and a mass murderer. Then we'll look into the nakedly political move by a Trump-appointed judge, Catherine Kimball Mazel, to a protege of Clarence Thomas, who overturned the CDC's mask mandate based on specious and amateurish legal reasoning preempting Biden from taking credit since he was about to end the mask mandate. Joining us is Anne Nelson, who teaches journalism and public affairs at Columbia University, whose latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. She has an article at the New Republic, 10 People You've Never Heard Of Who Are Destroying Democracy. Then finally, we will share some good news inasmuch as the repeat felon Credit Suisse is poised to be banned from the lucrative business of steering pension fund assets into often dubious investments while charging huge fees. Joining us is James Henry, an economist, lawyer and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens and economic development. The former chief economist at McKinsey & Company he is the co-founder with David K. Johnston of the new investigative reporting news service DCReport.org and is the author of Blood Bankers. His years of work exposing the crimes of Credit Suisse has contributed to the Labor Department yesterday announcing plans to take away the bank's privileged status as a qualified professional asset manager. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. Joining us now is Bill Browder, the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, who was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005 when he fell afoul of Vladimir Putin, and since 2009, when his lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was murdered in prison after uncovering a $230 million fraud committed by Russian government officials, he's been leading a campaign to expose Russia's endemic corruption and human rights abuses. And his new book, Just Out, is Freezing Order, a true tale of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Bill Browder. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And Freezing Order is a sequel to your earlier book, Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice, which is the story of your lawyer, Magnitsky, who was murdered in a Russian prison. And due to a lot of efforts on your part, the Congress passed the Sergei Magnitsky Act in uh, 2012. But this new book is basically about how the Russians struck back at you through lawyers and, I guess, in many ways, they're referred to as white boys, that in these white shoe law firms, uh, there are numbers of, of highly paid enablers of Russian oligarchs and others who work for Putin. But the money itself, in tracking the $230 million, some of it, it turns out, ended up in Putin's pocket, but it also ended up in New York real estate and in London. And it's only what, since... Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that British authorities have moved on some of this money laundering. Is that correct? That's entirely correct. The, um, um, I'm not even sure they've moved on money laundering per se in Britain. They've, they've created sanctions for oligarchs, meaning that their assets are frozen if they have any assets in the jurisdiction. But uh, Britain, uh, they call London grad um, because there's so much dirty Russian money here. And um, it's been a very welcoming place. And part of the reason it's so welcoming is that they'd never prosecute anybody in this country. Law enforcement never opens up economic crime cases against Russians for proceeds of crime, for money laundering, for any of this type of stuff. And so that's the um, that's the, the sad truth of what I've learned in my own investigation and, and in dealing with with all the law enforcement agencies of the world. Where I live in Britain is one of the worst places if you want to get somebody charged for a crime. So is it really changed? I mean, are you confident that there's been some house cleaning as a result of the outrageous Russian invasion of Ukraine? Well, it's a bit schizophrenic. On one side, you have Boris Johnson, who's been truly a leader in this area, you know, traveling to Kiev, meeting with Zelensky, providing weapons, perhaps more weapons than any other country. Um, so sanctioning oligarchs, which means that, that um, any assets they have here get frozen. And on the other side, you have lower down the food chain, the people who actually, you know, whose job it is day to day to law enforce. And those people, I don't think nothing has changed there. It's still the same rules, the same people, the same lazy ineffectiveness. And so I I have certain questions and doubts about how deep this is all going to go. It's great when you have a leader who's made a a decision in principle to do something and he's able to do what he can, but it requires the whole, you know, the whole boat to be rowing. And I'm not sure if everyone in this boat is a rower. Well, I have a background in, in nuclear arms control, Bill, and one of the things that's always troubled me about Putin and Putin's Russia is that we've never had before in geopolitics a combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And there's there's some concern being expressed by the CIA and by Ukraine's President Zelensky that Putin may use a nuclear weapon uh, if he gets in deeper trouble that he's already in in Ukraine. What's your sense of where this is heading? Because we, you have a standoff in Ukraine between Zelensky, who said we have to win this battle underway for the Donbass, and Putin, who can't afford to lose it. Well, I agree with both Zelensky and the CIA analysts that um, Putin is like Pablo Escobar with nukes. 
And uh, the, the only thing I disagree with is that Putin will use nukes even if he doesn't lose this war. In other words, he has that option available to him. He's, he's decided to launch this war for domination of his part of the world. I don't think that he's going to stop at Ukraine if he gets Ukraine. I think he wants to move on to Estonia and Poland and various other places. And so we have a really tough choice we have to make, which is standing up to Putin and not not allowing him to um, push us around and, you know, seeing at calling his bluff, because, I mean, what are we going to do? Are we going to when he when he comes when he's pointing his nuclear weapons at Washington and London and Berlin and pointing his tanks guns at Estonia? Are we just going to say, oh, OK, we don't want a nuclear war with you. You can have Estonia. And by the way, take Lithuania. Uh, Latvia, Poland, and Romania. While you're at it, uh, is that what we're going to do? Because if 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 the the feeling is that we don't want to stand up to him because of his nuclear um, uh, proclivities, then then we might as well fold right now. And and I, of course, I don't think we want to do that because then he's not going to stop with that. I mean, he could he could strive for world world domination if we're if we're not going to stand up to this guy. So what is going on? I mean, I'm sure you've tried to figure out this man who's been some, been your nemesis and you've been his nemesis. For example, he just honoured the soldiers, uh, the Russian soldiers who committed the atrocities in Bucha. What, what is that about? Yeah, I, this is standard operating procedure. I've seen it with my own eyes and my own situation. Uh, his his um, underlings uh, tortured and killed my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, and then uh, he gave awards and state honors to the people who um, uh, were involved in, in his persecution. This is what they do. It's, it's just the cynical, the most cynical thing ever. They reward the killers and then they punish and, and vilify the victims. That's, that's how Putin operates. It's, it's his standard operating procedure. And again, I'm speaking with Bill Browder, who's the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, who was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005. Since 2009, when his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered in prison after uncovering a $230 million fraud committed by Russian government officials, he has been leading a campaign to expose Russia's endemic corruption and human rights abuses. And his new book just out is Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. So, given that your new book is is really a, a, the sequel to the Magnitsky story in the sense that you're tracking down the money, and you know it's led to you know, basically being countersued by this uh, company, Prevazin, and they tried to set you up in honey traps, and they used uh, Interpol against you, and almost you got arrested in Madrid. And the story involves this American lawyer, improbably named John Moscow, who represented Prevazan. It also involves Glenn Simpson, the former journalist who founded the Fusion GPS, who was famous for the uh, Steele dossier, which ended up causing more grief to Hillary Clinton than it did in terms of uh, hurting Donald Trump. So I'd be interested in focusing a little on that, on the Steele dossier, and what happened with you and Glenn Simpson? He tried to use the Russians against you, and that's one of the accusations that's coming out now about the Steele dossier, in as much as it looks as if there were some Russian fingerprints on it, even though it basically, at the end of the day, it, it had nothing to do with what Obama had briefed 
the Republicans in the House and Senate on. You know, the CIA actually had some real information from a source inside the Kremlin who was exfiltrated out. So the Steele dossier was essentially a nuisance. But what's the connection there? Do you think that the fact that the guy behind the Steele dossier also went after you at the behest of Russians, do you think there was some Russian fingerprints on the Steele dossier as well? Well, so so let's, what I what I can tell you are the facts, and the facts are pretty uh, dark. So you have so the, you have the Russians. You have Vladimir Putin, who hates me. Why does he hate me? Because the Magnitsky Act freezes the assets of him and his cronies, or potentially does. And so he goes after me. How does he go after me? He goes after me in a lot of different ways. You, you talked about some of them. There were death threats, or kidnapping threats, Interpol, etc. But one of the other ways they went after me was by hiring. Um, uh, a bunch of U.S. citizens, uh, effectively, to work on behalf of the Russian state to try to um, defame me, to discredit me, and to discredit the Magnitsky Act. And um, who do they hire? They, as you mentioned, they hired John Moscow, and they also hired um, this guy Glenn Simpson. At the time they hired Glenn Simpson, he was also at the very same moment, so he's hired by the Russians, at the very same moment, he was supposed to be investigating Trump on behalf of Hillary Clinton in order to dig up dirt on Trump. So on, on one hand, um, he's, he's um, trying to uh, hurt Trump. And on the other hand, he's working for the, for the same government that's trying to help Trump. <laughs> so, um, so this guy is like working both sides of the coin at the same time, taking money from both sides and and it seems hard for me to to imagine that there wasn't some cross pollination between the two sides, and so uh, I I can't say for sure um, what infected the the dossier and what and what didn't. But what I can say for sure is that at the exact same time, um, as Glenn Simpson was taking money from an agent of the Russian government, he was working. Um, against the interests of the Russian government by trying to, um, or supposedly working against the interests of the Russian government by trying to expose Trump. And what was the, your run-in with Dana Rohrabacher, congressman, former Republican congressman here from Orange County, who, in a meeting between Kevin McCarthy and then House Majority Leader Paul Ryan, in an exchange, Kevin McCarthy said, I swear to God, Dana Rohrabacher and Donald Trump are on Putin's payroll, at which point Paul Ryan said, well, let's not talk about that. And now, <laughs> right. well, so, so, I mean, this Dana Rohrabacher is an interesting character. He was once the speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. So, okay, he's writing, I don't know if he wrote the tear down the wall speech, but he wrote a lot of speeches for the most anti-Soviet um, head of state that ever existed. So he was like, definitely in his early days, um, I don't know whether he ideologically believed it, but he was like part of the, you know, the most fierce cold warriors around. And then fast forward 30 years later, um, he's a, he's been like a member of Congress forever. And he's Putin's favorite congressman. He's the guy who um, uh, was basically doing all the carrying all the water for Vladimir Putin in Congress. And Dana Rohrabacher, um, and, and I don't know why he was doing this, by the way, but Dana Rohrabacher tried to get Sergei Magnitsky's name taken off of the Magnitsky Act, um, which is one of the Russians' big, big projects. And so Dana Rohrabacher was working together 
um, with a bunch of uh, lobbyists who had been hired by the Russians to take Magnitsky's name off of the Magnitsky Act. And he was doing their heavy lifting in Congress. And he was putting amendments to the Magnitsky law and he was giving speeches and he was saying terrible things about me and about Sergei Magnitsky. And it was really remarkable. A, a, a member of, of the US Congress doing so, so much stuff that was helpful for, for Vladimir Putin. Now, thank God we have a democracy in America. And when it came for uh, time for him to be reelected re after he'd been, you know, for, I don't know, for tw 20 terms or some crazy thing in Congress, he got knocked out after that whole incident. And I think probably because the um, Republican voters of Orange County didn't want to have anything to do with him anymore. Well, unfortunately, this peculiar affection for some members of the Republican Party for Putin continues. And one of the most prominent broadcasters here, on, particularly on Fox News, Tucker Carlson, uh, almost every night he sends out Valentines to Putin, who, you know, we all know what he's doing in Ukraine, uh, and yet there is this peculiar affection for this murderer, which is incomprehensible. But nevertheless, you must have been absolutely blown away when in 2016, I guess you were in Colorado on vacation watching television when uh, the Helsinki meeting between Putin and Trump took place. And at that meeting, Trump said it was a fantastic idea that Putin had floated, that he was going to uh, allow Americans to interrogate 12 Russian intelligence officers charged in connection with the 2016 election in exchange for Russians questioning you and former Ambassador uh, to Russia, Michael McFaul, and 10 other Americans. Trump thought that was a great idea. Thank God the United States Senate voted 98 to 0 overriding him. But how did it feel at that point when you, when you learned that your president of the United States was, was about to sell you out to Russia? And of course, you would have been on a one-way trip to Moscow. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it was horrifying. I mean, imagine that, that I, I mean, I, I was thinking a bunch of uh, black SUV um, from the fr from the Department of Homeland Security would surround where I was staying, grab me, put me on a rendition flight, and I'd find myself in Moscow, where I'd, by the way, been sentenced by Putin to 18 years in prison, and and, um, and then I would be tortured and killed. And so, I, I mean, the, the fact that the, the most powerful man in the free world, uh, President of the United States, was offering to hand me over was pretty demoralizing and terrifying. Thank God that eventually the, the institutions of America came to work and, and uh, effectively um, blocked that idea. But, oh, my God, if Trump had been reelected um, for a second term, I don't think I could have traveled back to the United States. I live in London. I couldn't have traveled back to the United States. Well, Trump could get a second term in 2024. Do you think that Trump and Putin will survive? I mean, Putin is more popular than ever in Russia. And, and one of the most frightening things about state TV propaganda is that it's so bloodthirsty that it's probably pushing Putin further into genocide as opposed to into negotiation. Well, it's, um, it's, it's impossible to predict where we're going to be in two years from now. There's just so much, there's just so many moving parts. Um, Putin could either be you know, the, the um, dictator of, of half the world, or he could be hanging from a tank. Um, you know, anything could happen. It's just so unpredictable. There's so many moving parts. But um, 
what I can say is that we're probably in the most dangerous moment in history since since we have all been alive. Um, you know, we're, the, uh, the 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 possibility of a nuclear war is higher than it's ever been. The possibility that this this madman, this homicidal maniac, ruins the lives of everybody is very much on the table right now. So just in closing then, why has it taken so long? You and I have had conversations over the years about who this man is, and then the evidence has been manifest, particularly blowing up apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing 300 of his own citizens, the, the siege of the theater in Moscow, which he conducted and allowed a bunch of innocent Russians to die as collateral damage, and then all of what you went through with your lawyer and his attempts, which have are outlined in your, your book to get you. And, and you believe, I take it, that a big part of his 2016 efforts to interfere in the U.S. elections to help Trump and hurt Hillary Clinton had to do with he wanted Trump to then get rid of the Magnitsky Act. So why has it taken so long? It only just happened very recently that the United States Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, actually started to talk about who... Putin really is, and listed some of the crimes that I just mentioned against his own people and against humanity. You know, there's been this conspiracy of silence for the last 22 years. The West has given Putin a free pass to do all those terrible things and many, many more that we don't even have time to men to, to list off. He's, Putin, this is not new. Putin is not new to this, um, to, to being a mass murderer. He's not new to being a, uh, the head of a criminal organization. Everybody knows it, but nobody wanted to say it. Everyone wanted to pretend it wasn't happening so they could just have a quiet life. And in doing so, they've um, basically made him more and more powerful and more and more brazen. And now we're, we're going to see the, the absolute worst of it as, as, as we watch what's happening in Ukraine and as we get sucked into this mess, which we could have avoided if we had just put some proper barriers around Putin earlier uh, before he ever did this. Well, Bill Browder, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And I've been speaking with Bill Browder, the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, who was the largest foreign investor in Russia until 2005 when he fell afoul of Vladimir Putin in 2009 when his lawyer Sergei Magnitsky was murdered in prison after uncovering a $230 million fraud committed by Russian government officials. He has been leading a campaign to expose Russia's endemic corruption and human rights abuses. And his new book just out is Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. We can take a brief station break and back looking to the nakedly political move by a Trump-appointed judge, Catherine Kimball Mazel, a protege of Clarence Thomas, who overturned the CDC's mask mandate based on specious and amateurish legal reasoning.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anne Nelson, who teaches journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris, a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award, and a native of Oklahoma. Her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the secret hub of the radical right. And she has an article at the New Republic, 10 People You've Never Heard Of Who Are Destroying Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson. Thank you, Ian. It's good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And I mean, it does seem fairly obvious to me, at least, that the Judge Catherine Kimball Mazel, the federal judge who blocked Biden's travel mask mandate, based on specious and incredibly amateurish legal reasoning. She, in fact, was preempting Biden, who was about to announce the mandate was over and get some political benefit from it. So it's just, it feels like a political hit to me. So is is she a part of this shadow network of media money and the secret hub of the radical right, given that she's a protege of Clarence Thomas, whose wife, we know Jenny Thomas, is one of the most rabid far-right activists out there. And, of course, this unqualified judge who Trump appointed was sworn in by Clarence Thomas. Absolutely. And, you know, if people go back to my book, Shatter Network, you can see how they laid the groundwork. Uh, you, know, you have the Council for National Policy, which includes the head, you know, the leading figures from the federal society who have been grooming law students for decades. Uh, to to really act as as their ideological representatives on the bench, and uh, Judge Mazel was a member of the Federal Society as a student at the University of Florida Law School, and when Trump came into office, he did so with the support of the fundamentalists and the oil czars from the Council for National Policy. And part of the bargain, as I document in the book, is that he agreed to appoint federal judges from the list that they provided to him. So she was appointed in September 2020, very early uh, in in the final days of of the Trump administration. And you look at these judges, uh, and they really work in lockstep across the country, these federal judges who are Trump appointees, representing the reactionary values of these organizations. Well, it's extraordinary and brazenly hypocritical, of course, because it was the the right wing in this country uh, and the Republicans who forever had this mantra about activist judges on the liberal left. Well, <laughs> give me a break. <laughs> this is well, about if I were a psychologist, I would say that their their middle name is projection. <laughs> well, <laughs> the idea that this unqualified, unelected judge could make such a massive ruling and undermine and overrule the public health department of this government, whose job it is to protect us all. And the people who've read her opinion say it's the most amateurish, that that a first-year law student could have written better. I mean, she talks about she's getting rid of the mask mandate because it doesn't deal with sanitation, as though, you know, a mask is supposed to be, you know, a miracle cure. A handy wipe. A handy wipe. Right. I mean, this is the scary part of it, is that 
what do they want, the Federalists and Leonard Leo and these characters and the Judicial Crisis Network and all this dark money? It seems like they want the whole ball game, and they're not even satisfied with having six reactionary judges on the Supreme Court. They want to have nine. So what's driving them? Oh, what's driving them was laid out by Paul Weyrich, who oversaw a manifesto that I include in my book. And he says that their plan is to be destructive of our national institutions so that they can build up a theocracy in their place. So we see this ongoing assault with everything in our country that has public in front of it, public health services, public education, public universities. Uh, their, their goal is to sow doubt and confusion and resentment and undermine public institutions in any way that they can, especially if they're secular. So they chose this, this woman uh, who's a graduate of the Covenant College, a Christian uh, college in Georgia. And, uh, so this is the sort of Christian nationalist movement underway that's a, a big part of the of what captured the Republican Party. I mean, in the exchanges between Ginny Thomas and Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff, you get more than a whiff of that Christian nationalism when Mark Meadows keeps talking about how the King of Kings is going to intervene. I mean, <laughs> this, absolutely. this is what they're about, right? They want to make Jesus Christ the head of state? Well, I, I see two purposes. Uh, and I believe, and I believe that I've extensively documented that the real powers behind this are economic. And that's how these fundamentalist economic interests converge with the Coke economic interests. When you look at states like my home state of Oklahoma, where they've been very powerful, you see that they're trying to eliminate taxes. They're starving the public institutions that rely on the tax base starting with public schools and continuing on to public health. And if they can eliminate their taxes for the oil industry and other big corporations, then uh, they increase their profits at the expense of the public. That is it, clear and simple. But you had David Koch running for vice president on a libertarian platform in 1980 and getting less than 1% of the vote. So his policies didn't fly with the public and they went back and with Ralph Reed and other strategists connected to the Council for National Policy, they devised a way to, to militate evangelicals and fundamentalists in swing states to win votes that ran contrary to national public opinion. And they, I'm afraid they're very close to achieving their goal. And again, I'm speaking with Anne Nelson, who teaches journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris, a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. She's a native of Oklahoma, and her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she has an article at the New Republic, 10 People You've Never Heard Of Who Are Destroying Democracy. So how do they justify themselves theologically, or do they even bother? I mean, if you look at the, the lesson of the prophet Jesus and, and the New Testament, and particularly the Beatitudes, and of course the Bible says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
it's pretty clear who Jesus is and what he was about. So how do these characters end up being shills for the plutocracy? So I just would like to refer to a fascinating new book by sociologists Sam Perry and Philip Gorski. And they talk about uh, the theology beneath this movement. And I guess one way to describe it is looking at the Old Testament and then jumping straight to Revelations, right? You kind of you kind of skip all the Jesus stuff in between. Mm-hmm. So one idea that underlies their precepts is that God chose America at its founding as the city on the hill. And the next one is that God's chosen people, i.e. the Christian fundamentalists, are the ones he chose to to dominate the United States. And a third really interesting component of this is the idea of race and the idea that God cursed Ham and his descendants and that African-Americans shouldn't have a fair shake in American society. So they don't always say these quiet statements out loud, but you see signs of it running throughout. And then when you jump to Revelation, there's a lot of conversation about the end times, about the rapture. And this is really frightening because, you know, this is the idea that you want to bring down the institutions and and crash the system, right, to, to expedite end times and the rapture. And of course, that's that's really terrifying. But you even had Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State under Donald Trump, speaking publicly about awaiting the rapture. So we're in very dangerous territory there. Well, I thought during the Trump administration, particularly not just Pompeo, who was Secretary of State and a member of the National Security Council, but also the Vice President, both of them, Pence and Pompeo, believe in the rapture. And It's a fundamental conflict of interest to be a steward of the American nuclear arsenal and to have an investment in the end of the world. There ought to be laws or rules against these people having any access to the nuclear codes or even to the National Security Council. Obviously, (laughs) nobody is talking about this, but don't you think there ought to be some kind of clarity on this in terms of the nuclear button? I mean, for example... If you believe in the rapture, then you don't care about the environment. You don't care about global warming. You, you know, let the Koch brothers have more pipelines. Let them spill more oil into rivers. It doesn't matter because the world's going to end. Isn't that the logic of it all? Well, uh, first of all, I, I've read a fair amount about Mike Pence, and I've seen him in action. I haven't, I, I have I haven't seen him refer to the rapture. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying I'm not aware of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether Pompeo really believes it or not, or whether they're just playing to the gallery. But that said, I, I absolutely agree that we need grown-ups in control of the nuclear codes, people who are not playing to the gallery, people who are sane and competent and thoughtful. Uh, and and this crowd doesn't give the uh, sense that that's how they operate. So what do you think the Justice Department then can do, Ann Nelson, in challenging this rule? Because it's uh, it's just incomprehensible to me that, that an unqualified federal judge should be able to make national policy on a scale 
like this and also do it in a political way that preempts Biden's ability to take credit for ending the mask mandate. And, you know, how quickly can the DOJ get in there and what happens? They, they appeal the ruling and then it goes up to a higher court. Is that how it works? Yeah, that should go to a lawyer and a, a legal scholar rather than myself. Um, and there would be various ways of addressing it through various legislative and administrative and you know, DOJ actions. Um, but, but one problem is that uh, COVID it moves very quickly. The variants come along very quickly. You have spikes, expected areas, and unexpected periods. So you need an agile public health policy. And I'm afraid our, our legal system is not agile. It, it is slow, the wheels turn very slowly. So this is not new. If you go back and I wrote about this extensively in the Washington Spectator, you had this movement opposing public health measures to protect the public from COVID. They were pushing the false idea that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin were cures. They're not. They were pushing those and discouraging vaccinations, which in, in my opinion is criminal because people, many people have died as a result of this disinformation that's been promulgated for political purposes. But again, the disruption and the distrust of our institutions, starting with the CDC and going on from there, is the goal to, to unsettle civil society in this country. And in large areas of the country, it is working. And what is the, the end game here then? I mean, the country is divided and Trump himself is the perfect instrument of division. And of course, that dovetails perfectly with Putin's strategy of turning Americans against each other and weakening this from within, and we oblige him in that regard. So what is the connection then to these Christian nationalists and their affection for Putin, particularly when you've got one of their propagandists on, on Fox News, Tucker Carlson, you know, sending valentines to Putin every night on his broadcast while Putin's slaughtering Ukrainians? Well, the, the connections to the Russians go way back. And I'm talking about the 1990s, where you have people in uh, st strategic positions of the Council for National Policy, like Paul Weyrich, commuting to Moscow and setting up partner organizations in Moscow and working with patriarchs of the Russian Orthodox Church to develop anti-LGBT policies and, and uh, various other partnerships. Then you move forward and you have Paul Manafort, a little later than that, developing extensive business relationships with the Russians. You have a confluence of interests from the fossil fuels industries. So these, and, and you know, we, we still are, are actively looking at the ties to Trump. But all of these uh, relationships were in play well before Trump appeared on the national political scene. So you, it's essential for us to tie those to the digital disinformation project they have going on, the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg that has been deluging our social media with disinformation. Um, and amidst this, uh, 
our only hope is that American citizens, Democrats and Republicans, take a look at our democracy and decide it's worth fighting for. Because I think civic engagement in time for the next two elections is, is our hope. And we've seen the country pull together in the past, historically, it's not impossible. But people cannot be complacent because these operations are going on right now. But essentially, it's their atavistic vision of make America great again and going back to Reagan's uh, idea of bringing back the perfect world of Ozzie and Harriet when blacks and Latinos were invisible. Isn't and women that, were subservient. And yes. women were subservient, <laughs> right. Fascinating womanhood, right? <laughs> waiting for their hubbies with a glass. Without the with, apron, that's with, right. Exactly, and a, and a chilled martini. So this vision, of course, ultimately is not going to work, right? I mean, the idea that you could form a union with Putin of, and that somehow it would be the last redoubt of white Christians' family values and uh, purging and persecuting gays, which is what happens in Russia and what certainly starting to happen in Florida. At the end of the day, it's not going to work, is it? I mean, can they secede here in the United States? I mean, oh they've got goodness, the Ian. Supreme Court on their side. They've got, they're have got certainly doing pretty well in terms of the power structure, but are we going to end up with two parallel countries? You know, A citizens are the good Christians and the B citizens are the rest of us? Well, uh, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but... I would say in the short term, their idea is to impose their dominion on the rest of us and to exploit the country's national resources and direct the economy to their benefit at the expense of the rest of us. Um, I don't know if they have, you know, and, and consolidate their powers, so challenging it through actual elections uh, is not possible. And we've seen this model played out historically various times. All right. It's 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 not new. There's there's a as they say, there's a there's a dictator's playbook um, that involves manipulating electoral mechanics in order to seize power and then consolidate it so it can't be challenged and then uh, rapaciously exploiting the economy. So it's not a million miles away from how Germany unfolded in the 1930s. Uh, it's not a million miles away from various communist dictatorships. Uh, and we always thought, I speak as an American, you know, born and bred, that we were somehow immune. That our, our union and our political system were so perfect that they couldn't be damaged in this way. And what we're finding is that that's not the case. It requires an active defense. Well, I hope people are listening. And it does seem that given the massive voter suppression underway by the Republicans, that the Democrats should have their hair on fire and people should realize that American democracy itself is at stake in this election, not just, uh, it's not a normal election in November. It's not normal. And, uh, you know, one thing that, that pains me is, is when people say, what are the Democrats doing? And I don't see any reason why the country should rely on a single political party to save their bacon. Uh, there are Republicans of conscience who are deeply alarmed by, by the attacks on democracy 
And I think that we need to redirect our attention to saving democracy with a little D, regardless of what the, the, the Democratic Party does. Well, Anne Nelson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Anne Nelson, who teaches journalism and public affairs at Columbia University. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, a New York Times book review editor's choice, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris, which is a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. She's a native of Oklahoma, and her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. And she has an article at the New Republic, 10 People You've Never Heard Of Who Are Destroying Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with some good news that the repeat felon Credit Suisse is poised to be banned from the lucrative business of steering pension funds' assets into often dubious investments while charging huge fees. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, James Henry, an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who has written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens, and economic development, the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company. He is the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org and is the author of Blood Bankers. His years of work exposing the crimes of Credit Suisse has contributed to the Labor Department yesterday announcing plans to take away the bank's privileged status as a qualified professional asset manager. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Henry. Glad to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, James, and congratulations. I know you and others uh, like Bill Black have worked, what, for about eight years to get... Yeah, Bill was involved. We had a team of people, um, you know, back in 2014, uh, Credit Suisse uh, pled guilty, or rather their lawyer, who is now our FBI director, Christopher Wray, pled guilty to a um, a corporate felony uh, involving facilitating uh, tax evasion by more than 20,000 wealthy Americans. They had set up uh, at the bank a secret private banking arm that specialized in helping these wealthy Americans take money outside the country and not pay any taxes on it. And that was probably as much as 40 billion or more from these Americans. They had more than 600 people working in this unit. Uh, But anyway, in 2014, uh, the bank uh, got off with a fine, uh, $2.6 billion fine. It sounds like a lot of money to us, but it wasn't much to them. It was tax deductible in Switzerland. Uh, Nobody went to jail. They didn't lose any operating licenses. And uh, so Ralph Nader and uh, uh, Andreas Frank from Germany, uh, Dr. Paul Morgenoff from Australia, uh, Bart Naylor from D.C., uh, Tim uh, Blackshultz, another fellow involved, and uh, myself uh, decided we would go to the Department of Labor, which has authority over uh, pension funds in the United States to determine uh, whether or not people who have been convicted of corporate or individual felonies uh, can advise them or take their money. And uh, Credit Suisse has a big business in in doing so. Uh, And so um, 
we asked them to uh, to back in 2015 January we went to DC and we had all these expert witnesses we also had several holocaust survivors who had come in and testified that credit suisse had systematically failed to comply with the terms of the uh 1.3 billion dollar settlement that is signed uh with holocaust survivors in august 1998 and they'd never seen any money um and we had just case study after case study of uh, this the involvement of this bank in particular uh in kind of serial crimes uh and yet at the end of all that compelling testimony uh the department of labor and this is obama's department of labor and um decided to give them yet another waiver. Uh they put some conditions on it uh which said that they had to have an outside uh in, in independent advisor uh and an auditor to keep track of their behavior and that they couldn't engage in this kind of behavior anymore. Um well then roll forward to 2019 they got another uh waiver uh from the Trump Department of Labor. Uh and so we were th- thinking that our efforts were in vain. But in February uh this year, uh the OCCRP, which is an international consortium of investigative journalists, basically uh uh has been doing extraordinary work on financial crimes all over the planet, published uh their Swissgate whistleblower report in which uh, an insider at the bank revealed uh the fact that what we had suspected was true that they have uh you know continued to persist in felonious behavior and laundering money and encouraging tax dodging and facilitating kleptocracy all over the planet uh indeed ever since uh this 2014 conviction so uh you know this really left the uh, Biden administration's department level administration department of labor with very little choice and so it finally did what it should have done 7 years ago and it gave uh, US pension funds uh, just this week it gave them one year deadline to wrap up their affairs uh with this dodgy bank and the department of labor haven't sent out a press release but they published it in the uh, the government uh, yes federal uh, federal register and uh, the federal register they quietly dropped this news on everyone and um, thankfully dr morjanoff in australia noticed this fact earlier this week and said wow we just <laughs> this is a victory they've been given a, right. just a year to get get the hell out so uh, right and what they said just in uh, just to read from the federal register credit for status is a privilege not a right and US taxpayers should not be paying for the US government to bend over backwards to ensure that a convicted entity and its affiliates get to enjoy a privileged status under US law the convictions and other alleged credit suisse related criminal misconduct constitute serious years long systemic criminal misconduct that counsels against letting the swiss bank retain its privileged uh, status under the labor department and of course that privileged status allows them to put pension fund money into investments other than stocks bonds mutual funds and the like so yeah it's um, it's a pretty uh, striking kind of statement they had to confess basically and uh, agree and admit and stipulate that uh, the allegations uh, of misconduct were all true uh and they had to agree to terminate their relationships with US pension funds so this is something that uh i still suspect credit suisse will try to contest this uh 
this one more time. There is a, a period of appeal here that's open, but we're encouraging people to actually get on the horn in the article that we published in DC Reports. There's a phone number that one can call and just say, you know, hold your hold your ground by the administration. Do not cave on this one. Um, we know the banksters have influence, but this is just way over the top. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some other things that uh, stand out here. One is that the Christopher Wray is still the FBI director. He was appointed by Donald Trump in, uh, in uh, July of 2017. And since then, not surprisingly, I think, we've seen a decline in white-collar crime prosecutions by the Department of Justice. Um, you know, Credit Suisse, uh, he was the number one attorney for Credit Suisse in 2014 and probably the biggest source of his income while he was at King Spaulding, the Atlanta law firm, as a white-collar defense attorney. Usually, you wouldn't expect a preparatory school for being an outstanding FBI director to involve uh, uh, more than a decade of white-collar criminal defense, but that's what we have. Um, the other thing that we're concerned about is Credit Suisse also has some interesting investments in other kinds of businesses in the United States, which don't really fall under the Department of Labor uh, regulation with respect to pension funds. For example, they happen to be a big investor in the dark trading platforms that are used by high frequency traders on Wall Street. And uh, we've had increasingly diffi increasing difficulty regulating those transactions and even finding out uh, who's involved in them. Credit Suisse is one of the biggest players in that kind of uh, high-frequency trading network. Um, so, you know, we're encouraged. I've been after these guys since 1987 when I caught their predecessor institutions uh, laundering Ferdinand Marcos money from the Philippine Central Bank. Um, and they were, you know, just on, going on and on, litany of... Uh, uh, kleptocrats that they've been involved in servicing. And they were involved in a big scandal in Mozambique that got uncovered in the last couple of years. Uh, they've been, you know, they were invo involved with, I mean, if you go all the way back to the 30s, the Swiss banks were, of course, involved in not only ripping off Holocaust victims, but also uh, laundering money for the Nazis. So, you know, that's a sordid kind of behavior that we would like to put it into. So in terms of the shift in white-collar crime under prosecution at the FBI under Christopher Wray, early in the Obama administration, there were more than 1,000 white-collar prosecutions each month, and that fell to under 100 a month under Trump. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's come up a little bit under Biden, right? But it's still way down. Yeah, I think part of that is the objective fact that the big financial crisis uh, that was a reckoning for a lot of this uh, mortgage fraud was in 2008. So naturally, a lot of that was going to be concentrated uh, in the first eight years after the, that period. But, you know, that being said, if you compare the Obama track record with uh, that of, say, you know, George Bush one, um, <laughs> under Bush one, we had the savings and loan uh, scandal. And as Bill Black describes in great detail, they spent more than they prosecuted more than 700 bankers, and you know, uh, quite a few of them went to jail. Uh, I think the actually I got that wrong. The prosecutions were something like 3,000 and 700 or so, at least 700 to 900 went to went to jail in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, in 
the 2000s, and specifically under Obama, uh, nobody went to jail except lower level, a few lower level banksters. Uh, no banks lost their operating licenses. And yet from 1998 uh, through 2016, we have uh, the top 22 banks in the world uh, engaging in more than 655 uh, corporate felonies in, in 14 different criminal categories that I counted up. Um, in that period, uh, you know, again, nobody went to jail. They all got off with these fines. And the fines uh, actually occurred at the end of the period. So if you looked at this on a net present value basis, this was a profitable activity, uh, even if you got caught, um, because all the profits came up front. So, you know, this is a problem that we haven't solved. We have, uh, you know, we have not figured out how to penalize these large corporations and banks uh, for engaging in criminal behavior uh, in a way that makes them uh, change their behavior. They keep on inventing new ways to, uh, to rip us off. So specifically, though, in terms of what's happened now with the Department of Labor taking away this privileged status that Credit Suisse has had as a qualified professional asset manager, meaning that the Department of Labor has has oversight over pension funds. And what have Credit Suisse been doing with the money from these pension funds and how have they been ripping off retirees? Well, I think one of the issues here is just the high costs of pension fund management. Um, I had an opportunity last year to take a very close look at how New York State uh, pension funds uh, and uh, the uh, you know teachers unions and the hospital workers uh, and other state workers uh, how those pension funds have been doing uh, you know in terms of uh, returns after investment uh, and you would have expected not knowing anything about uh, stocks or bonds that if you just uh, put your fin hand in the air in the last five years the stock market has been a great place to be and most investors uh, have made uh, good returns. On average, uh, stock markets uh, have done well, and there's been record trading. Uh, somehow, the New York State pension funds all managed to lose money. And not only that, they were paying uh, you know, people who were like former BlackRock uh, managing directors uh, uh, huge sums uh, to, uh, you know, to manage their assets, and, and this was just not paying off. So uh, I suspect that if we now take a look at how U.S. pension funds are doing over this period, we're going to find some surprising uh, realities. This is a good trigger uh, for such an investigation. Let's actually t t ask the unions to take a look at how their their funds have been performing uh, after the fees that they've been paying. We had this issue with the financial transactions tax in New York, where we were trying to argue for a, a modest 0.1% tax on all uh, stock trades. And New York has actually had the tax in place since 1905. But since 1982, uh, they have been rebating it all to Wall Street investors. And so they've rebated more than $360 billion since 1982 to the top 1%. Um, it turns out that, you know, this tiny tax, uh, progressive 0.1% sales tax, uh, no investor would really notice that. But it is a, a, a bevy of high-frequency traders who are dominating the market, and they contribute to people like Chuck Schumer, uh, the governors of New York, uh, Cuomo, and now Hochul, and they have an outsized influence on uh, this 
on this behavior. But it turned out that, you know, one of the arguments against that tax, which we refuted, was the idea that it would be costly to pension funds. And when we looked at the numbers, uh, the, the cost of the incremental cost of this tax was an absolute rounding area error uh, uh, compared to uh, all of these fees that they were paying to outside investors from Wall Street uh, right to jobs. to lose money to instead to of lose make money, money instead of paying right. So just to, uh, we've got to wrap it up here, yeah, Jim. Yeah. But I wanted to let the audience know that they can call. The White House. Uh, the number is two zero two four five six one 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 one, and make sure that the Biden administration doesn't sort of chicken out on nailing Credit Suisse. And of course, we'll send the link to that article with the phone number at backgroundbriefing.org. The article from uh, dcreport.org: Repeat felon Credit Suisse may finally lose privileged American status. Thanks for joining us. Great, delighted. Keep up the good work. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with James Henry, an economist, lawyer, and investigative journalist who's written extensively about global banking, debt crises, tax havens, and economic development, the former chief economist at McKinsey & Company. He's the co-founder with David K. Johnson of the new investigative reporting news service, dcreport.org, and the author of Blood Bankers. His years of work exposing the crimes of Credit Suisse has contributed to the Labor Department yesterday announcing plans to take away the bank's privileged status as a qualified professional asset manager. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half